0: Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate, experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available
1: at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. If you're just joining us, this episode is part two in a series about racism in real estate. In episode 108, the first black president, of the San Francisco Association of Realtors, Don Saunders, joined me to tell the story of Prop 14, a ballot initiative writing real estate discrimination into the state constitution that the California Association of Realtors wrote, paid, and promoted until it was voted into law in 1964. The California Association of Realtors that exists today in 2021 has been amazingly helpful and cooperative in helping me create these episodes by making current leadership available to to discuss historic acts of racism in California real estate. The 2021 president of the California Association of Realtors is David Walsh from the Silicon Valley area. The safe thing to say is almost always nothing. So I'm profoundly thankful to David Walsh and all of the leadership, at the California Association of Realtors for what you are about to hear from David Walsh.
2: First, let me say thank you, Matt, for the invitation to speak on the Escrow Out Loud podcast. This is an incredibly important subject that you are discussing, and it's great that realtors like yourself and Don Sanders are taking the time to engage in these tough discussions given that we know the people of color experience crushing discrimination that was sanctioned by all levels of government in our country and specifically by many realtor associations. As realtors, we have a unique responsibility to address continuing fair housing issues because of our terrible history of promoting discriminatory housing policy and in discriminating against certain groups, particularly African Americans. I want to say unequivocally that CR's past policies in support of racist practices, including steering, redlining and creating covenants that prohibit non-white people from living in certain communities, we're wrong. Not only must CAR and realtors talk about this history, continued disparities and current discrimination bias, but most importantly, we must take the lead in taking action to address any barriers and disparities that remain because of this past. As leaders in this industry, we play a powerful role in California housing policy, And getting these policy questions right is critical to the health and educational outcomes of all California communities. As the state's largest trade association, CAR must continue to use its powerful voice to properly address discrimination, its legacy, and the resulting homeownership and wealth disparities that we helped create. We must make sure that our future leadership reflects California's diversity and that we are as educated as possible on fair housing and related discrimination issues. As such, we are committed to being an instrumental part of the solution that encourages all types of diversity and fights to build more inclusive communities. We can't change the actions of the past, but we can act now on how to address the legacy of those actions. Thank you, Matt, for giving me this opportunity to speak to your listeners. Thank you,
1: Dave Walsh, 2021 President of the California Association of Realtors. That was a powerful statement. I'm Matt Fuller, the broker of record at Jackson Fuller Real Estate. In my last podcast, retired real estate broker Don Saunders helped us understand the fair housing battle between the 1963 Rumford Fair Housing Act and 1964 state ballot initiative Proposition 14 and how that impacts all of us to this day. I've assembled a panel of accomplished Bay Area realtors and a community activist to discuss racism in San Francisco real estate, not just racism in the abstract. How is racism historically affected and presently affects housing in the Bay Area? We've got some great insight and powerful stories from our panelists. But first, one work vote to get us started from the press secretary to California Governor Pat Brown, John Burby discussing an insight about California he gained from his experiences of the 1960s fair housing battle. I came to California from from Hawaii. Hawaii is not racially perfect, but it was, you know, there is a hierarchy, an ethnic hierarchy in Hawaii that's as rigid as any place, but they ignore it. And they try not to uh, let it interfere with daily life. And coming into California was quite a shock to me because this state was then and is now, I think, racist in ways it doesn't even uh, acknowledge or understand. All right, so let me introduce the panelists that are with me today. They are an esteemed group of real estate professionals who have incredible depth of knowledge and are very, very smart, experienced people. And we have one non-realtor on the group to keep us honest, as they say. So let me start by asking uh, Dina, Dina Williams, will you give a a short intro?
3: Absolutely. My name is Dina Aslanian-Williams. I'm a realtor in San Francisco with Compass. I have been in real estate for the last 20 years. I have lived on the West Side since 1976. And presently, I'm the president of the West of Twin Peaks Central Council, which is comprised of 20 neighborhoods on the West Side. So, I'm pretty well immersed in the West Side and, and knowledgeable about the history. Thank you.
1: And our next guest, Veronica Honeycutt.
3: Yes, I'm Dr. Veronica Honeycutt, and I am a
4: community activist and have been for over 50 years. I'm a retired educator and administrator, having spent 45 years with San Francisco, three with San Francisco Unified School District, and 42 with City College of San Francisco. I now chair the Citizens Advisory Committee for the Shipyard. I'm a founding board member with the Alliance for Girls and an active member with the PWIC, a women's group.
1: Wow, that's a lot of hats. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. I'm really looking forward to your contribution, Dr. Honeycutt. Our next guest, Mr. Kevin Birmingham.
5: I'm Matt, Kevin Birmingham here, past president of the San Francisco Association of Realtors in 2018, father of three that are five and under in San Francisco, that's fairly unknown these days, Uh, born and raised in the city, my parents are immigrants, and live in the West Portal area, which is where I spent most of my life, although I think I've lived in every neighborhood in San Francisco besides Pacific Heights and the Bayview, but everything else in between I've lived in.
1: Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, next, I would like to introduce Alan Okamoto.
0: Hello, uh, my name is Alan Okamoto. I have been a licensed real estate practitioner since 1964, which is probably before most of our panelists have been born. I was first active with the San Francisco Association of Realtors back in 1980, and I served at every leadership position on the board until I was elected president in 1990. I've been active with the California Association of Realtors and the National Association of Realtors. I have my own real estate office here in San Francisco's Japantown, and uh, I am honored to be associated with all of our panelists here today.
1: It is an esteemed group. Uh, And our final, uh, but definitely last but not least, Dr. Veronica Honeycutt also, amongst all those other jobs, found time to raise at least one daughter. Tia Honeycutt, thank you for joining us.
6: Hello, everyone. My name is Tia Honeycutt. I am a realtor with Coal Banker. I was born and raised in San Francisco, and I now live in Oakland. I'm past president of the Oakland Association of Realtors, and I currently serve at the state level with the California Association of Realtors, which we will be talking quite a bit about later, as a director, a regional chair, and I also serve on the executive committee um, at the California Association of Realtors, and I'm very, very excited for our discussion today.
1: Yeah. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And let's hop right into this discussion. Alan, since you were the the realtor who's been realtying longest, <laughs> let me start with you. What was your experience of Prop 14 back when you started in real estate in 1964? And what do you think it changed in the state and San Francisco or anything?
0: Well, actually, I'm probably the only member of the palace that was active in real estate way back in the 1960s. I can't believe it's been so long. As a young realtor right out of college, I was licensed when I was 18. The Rumford Act and Proposition 14 and all of the fair housing uh, legislation that was going on in California uh, didn't really sink in with me. Most of the legislation had to do with the black-white issues. And uh, my clientele, although it was was about 20% African-American, it was mostly with the Japanese-American population. So... uh, I really didn't feel that I was affected terribly by the legislation. I think it was the Japanese in me that if we were discriminated against, if any of my clients were, if I was, we just went on to the next one. We just accepted it. And uh, as I said, it's a Japanese thing to turn the other cheek, so to speak, and move on.
1: So fair enough. And I just want to make sure I heard correctly. 1964 was your first year in the business, right? That's correct. All right. And, you know you're focused on building a career, right? You're not looking out there at housing policy because for the most part, the ethnic community that you served wasn't impacted by it so much, correct?
0: Well, well, not specifically by uh, Prop 14 and the Rumford Act and whatnot, but 1964 was approximately
1: 20. Yeah, so in terms of that, I'm not saying no discrimination. I want to definitely get into that, but I was just curious if like being there at that time, you know, as an agent, it was impressionable on you and and I can understand why it wasn't well, that's true. I mean, I was looking at it from
0: outside the problem unfortunately there was late nineteen sixties was an incredible decade for San Francisco, California, and the United States with the terrible problems that we had with racial unrest and all the social problems and uh But then again, as I said, as a japanese American, I was looking at it from outside the situation
1: totally get it. Dr. Hunnicott.
4: Yes.
1: Before we go too much further, I should have asked you sooner. Do you prefer doctor or Veronica?
4: Uh, Either way, whichever works for you.
1: All right. You worked hard and you earned it, and I do not want to deny it, unlike some people that come to mind. Thank you. Well, you are not a, a real estate agent. You have obviously, I think, been around perhaps as long as Mr. Okamoto. Were you aware of Prop 14 back in the 60s? Was it on your radar?
2: Well, I've heard about it, of
4: course, but I was so busy with doing other things that I had to target where I put my my energy and my efforts. And so I worked with a lot of community activists like Tamatra Scott, Mary Rogers, Toshi Koba I worked with. I remember when I was very young, I went up to the Booker T. Washington Community Center and talked to Ms. Koba about starting a mentoring group in the Western Edition, and she and I worked together on that. You know, Yori Wada was around at the time when I was growing up and was a young thing. And my parents had told me, you need to get an education. So focus on just getting your education, and that's exactly what I did. I also started working early, too, because my grandmother also told me, you need to work hard until the day you die. Now, I don't believe she literally meant that, but she wanted me to understand that I was going to have to work hard in America or in any other place that I happened to live. So, uh, yes, I kept up what was happening with African-American, was fortunate enough to, and I can't tell you the exact time period, I would say late 60s, was fortunate enough to be called over when the Black Panthers marched at uh, 135 Ben Nest on the San Francisco Board of Education and told them they would have black teachers and that they would have, we wanted a black curricula. I got the phone call from someone and said, Veronica, we need for you to leave the school you're at. You've got to come over and start this, this program. So I started the African-American Studies program. They didn't call it quite that, the African Studies or whatever the name was. But they, along with my colleagues, we started African-American courses for the students. And they were, uh, it was a very exciting time. And there was a lot going on. You have to remember that during the 40s and 50s, the California's black population, more than tripled. people were drawn to the area because of wartime jobs. But there was a tremendous amount of discrimination that was going on at that time. There's just no
3: doubt about that.
1: Yeah. One of the things I found out in researching this is that by the 1940s in the Los Angeles area, over 95 percent of the land had racial restrictive covenants recorded against them. So in other words, even by the 1940s, only 5% of the vast L.A. area was open to black and brown people to live there.
4: You see, Matt, you have to understand, when black and brown people were up here trying to rent, they were running into difficulties.
1: Oh, yeah, still are. right? And still
4: are. And if you were a black woman with children, Oh, my God, I have a story to relate to you. So you get the feel for what blacks in particular, I'm I'm targeting that right now, but but black and brown people have been through just trying to get housed. okay? and all we wanted to do was work. All we wanted to do was have a a glimpse and be a part of that American dream. So this, you know, I think
1: I think your story is probably way more interesting than my question. So just I would love to hear the story.
4: Okay, so let me let me set the tone for you, though, Matt. In the 1957, San Francisco Giants star Willie Mays faced a discrimination problem. It took Mayor George Christopher and the negative national press to persuade the white homeowner to sell his house to Mays. And in rather absurd fashion, after Mays moved in, a bottle containing a racist note flew through their front window. That's Willie
3: Mays.
1: And that now, neighborhood was May Forest Hill. I add
3: to that, yes, uh, Veronica, Dr. Yes. Veronica? Yes, dear. So the neighborhood that Willie Mays integrated was where I live now. Oh, my goodness. Forest Hill. Oh, my goodness. Uh, he tried to go to St. Francis Wood. They wouldn't sell it to him. He came to Forest Hill, mm-hmm. and whoever intervened, he they did sell a home to him, and My friends who grew up in a neighborhood recall that he would stand. It's a 1950s modern mid-century home Mm -hmm. and that he would actually throw candy to the kids. And the kids do not remember any of that racial strife. All they Mm -hmm. remember is Willie Mays lived in this neighborhood and gave candy to them. Oh, that's nice. So he turned it around. Yes. And that whole thing. So that is, and I was told that we were better than the other ones because mm-hmm. it integrated. And the other person that integrated this neighborhood was Terry Francois. Yes. Right. Yes, so absolutely that's a little bit of Forest Hill uh, lore.
4: And you know what's interesting, too, that in 1959, uh, Seaborne and Jane Burks, Tried to buy a house on Marletta Drive in Mira Loma Park in that neighborhood. And Seaborn was a veteran and a small business owner. His wife was a sixth grade teacher, and they offered the advertised price of $27,950. The track developer refused to sell to them because they were black. So they had to go, and they have, were represented by the ACLU NC. And in 1962, the California Supreme Court ruled in their favor and upheld the UNRWA Act. Okay, so this this that's, a, that's another example, uh, you know, where you try to buy a house and you face all this discrimination. My next person is well-known in the Bayview community. Her name is Doris. She just celebrated her 88th birthday. In 1969, she was a divorced woman and mother raising four children and a nephew, five children total, of course. She was looking for housing. Back then, they had a rule making it hard for black women to buy property. If you were of childbearing age, they even had it where you needed someone else to sign on the property with you. So the house that she wanted was made for an Italian family, but the Italian family was working with a black realtor, Gage Realty, old-time family, no longer around but uh, I see worked with at the college with one of their members. They sold the house to Doris for $16,500. It was a custom-built house, ideal for her. It had a two-bedroom apartment down. She liked it because she could take and rent out the two-bedroom apartment for $250, which was the price of her note, so that when she worked, she'd take care of the needs of everyone else. And so she she indicated to me when I interviewed her that she said the real estate folks could double dip. They could the white folks who were leaving the community, they'd sell them homes in San Mateo or Brisbane or other cities. And the blacks who wanted to buy homes had to pay higher prices. But they finally got a piece of property. Yes. That's her story. That's her story, Matt. That's her story, my friends. Yeah,
1: and the behavior you just described is blockbusting. That is uh, classic blockbusting. Um, and yeah, it happened and, right and then here my in my own Francisco. story, Matt,
4: is this. Okay. And then I will, I will be quiet so that you and your wonderful guests can talk. And if you need me, you please do ask me. Perfect. Now, we rented for years, lived in the Western Edition. I know the addresses. That shows you how it's ingrained in my mind. 1200 Laguna, which is now condo, beautiful homes. 2289 Sutter Street, right down from what was then Mount Zion Hospital. Okay. But there came a time, it was time for us to stop renting and have our own home. And my mother and my grandmother always wanted to leave something for me. They always were taking care of me. So they said, you need a home where you can live and raise your family. Somehow or another, she and another black realtor, Glenn Realty, at that time, they were over on Divisadero. The they had homes on the same street I live on in Minerva. They were in, So in 1975, they bought this home for, I think it was about $40,000. I don't know, because I haven't looked at the, the paperwork recently. The time has passed so quickly. Now, I tried to buy, prior to that, I tried to buy a house in Monterey Heights had this wonderful European-American realtor. Oh, we're going to get you a house, Veronica. She was excited and I was excited. She found the house. The the owner had said the house was available. So I visited the house, and 20 minutes later, she got a call from the owner, and the owner said the house was sold. She looked at me, and I said to her, I understand what happens, and you did too. I want to thank you for attempting to help me with that. But ultimately, down the line, we did have success. With the house that, that i live in now you also need to understand all of you and i'm sure you do that a lot of black people who did purchase property and i have an asian friend who had to use the same process they had white folks buy the house for them and the white folks just transferred the title over to them you know they had to have a house and thank god there were good white folks of conscience who said, I don't care what their motivation was. Maybe they were in real estate, who cares? But they did open up doors. As a result, Victor bought his first house in Chinatown. And I can't even tell you how many property pieces he's got down there now, because he got it. If I own land, then that's one way I can pass wealth on to my family. So those are some stories that that I can share with you. Yes, blacks have had to deal with everything imaginable with being relegated to segregated housing. The Fillmore was a rich neighborhood. I loved living in the Fillmore. We had everybody there. It was diverse. I remember going to the German Deli. I remember going to the cleaners who happened to be African-American. Then there was someone who was Latin up the street. Then there was a Japanese man that owned a drugstore. It was a wonderful, rich community. But that's another story. If,
1: and, if yes, the and then best. it was bulldozed. A whole nother story, right? A podcast Yes, that, That's sound. hard
4: to take that word, bulldoze, but you're right, honey. There's a lot of reasons there.
1: Yeah, it's a horrible story. It, it really is. And we will save that for another podcast. Alan, you have been patiently waiting to say something. What do you have for me, sir? <laughs>
0: Thank you very much. Veronica, I could listen to you all day long. You're fabulous. You mentioned Tamatra Scotty Scott. Toshikoba, Yori Wada, those were three of my favorite people back in the 60s and early 70s. You lived on Sutter Street, probably two blocks away from me. I was at 2742 Bush Street. I mean, everything that you mentioned about the Fillmore, my office was oh at Fillmore God. and Bush. Oh. And I remember all the delis and out of Macal- uh, Fillmore and McAllister and
1: the Jewish areas.
0: I tell you, we got to get together. We could chit
1: chat and talk forever. Yes. Fabulous. Dinner's on me for the panelists when we're allowed to have dinner. <laughs> okay, we've got that on record, okay? Wonderful. But thank you very much, Veronica.
4: Thank you.
1: Dina or Tia, would either of you like to just, let's hop right into it, which is, you know, experiences um, with racism and San Well, I just to
3: add to Dr. Honeycutt's story about the West Side. You know, Willie Brown wanted to buy a house in a Midtown Terrace Mm -hmm. or Forest Knolls. I think it was Forest Knolls across the street. It was 1960, 62, 64, brand new, all electric kitchen, avocado color or Brown, whatever. And his wife loved it. And he was a newly minted lawyer and had moved here from Texas and they wouldn't sell him the house. And that's what turned him into, he decided to get into politics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes uh, the effect could be positive. (laughs) I mean, not positive, but anyway, in that case, made a very powerful politician that has helped us a lot. Wanted to just share a personal story, if I may. Yes, please. Uh, When I first moved in this neighborhood, 1989, that's about 32 years ago. And for those of you who may not know, my late husband was African-American, tall, black man, and... Our next door neighbor to the right of me, the house I ended up selling later to the people who live now, came over. She was a Jewish woman and said, don't be surprised if the man to the house to the left of you burns a cross on your lawn. So Ken heard this story and Ken was somebody who never got nothing faced him. So he decided to befriend this man and I would see them outside watering the lawn. I still don't have a sprinkler. You know, lawn has to be watered by hand. And they would just stand side by side and Mr. McKenna would be next door and Ken would be watering his lawn. So eventually, the Mr. McKenna got cancer. And as he was dying in the hospital, the only person besides his wife that ever visited him mm. was my husband. Mm. And that's a story, you know, of... Somebody who, I mean, it wasn't segregated then. We were perfectly fine buying here. But there was a history, and it was only, even 32 years ago, people still had the leftover of the old times. So sometimes that's just the only thing that you could do is personal diplomacy. But anyway, that's it. That's the story. But as a realtor, I just want to say I remember KQED Special that talked about the Rumsford Act and Prop 14 and also the California Association of Realtors fighting the 1968 Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And I was very embarrassed when I watched that show because I always saw us as realtors in the forefront of equalizing things. Of course, that's how it has been in the last 20 years as I've been involved. But watching that show, it really opened my eyes that it wasn't always like that. And I think as San Francisco realtors, what we could do is at California and national is just be that light, be that person that doesn't stand for any discrimination. In my own neighborhood, one of the things that it says still in the agreement, because the racial one has gone away by act of federal government. But one of the things that still is, and we don't follow it, is that you have to be members of the same household. Well, that automatically negates people that may be living together and obviously also negates gays and lesbians because, you know, we couldn't always get married.
1: Right. Until, so we, until we could get was, married. Yeah. Uh,
3: it, and, you know, anyway, the only people that could live that weren't in the family were household help. So things change and that's good.
1: Slowly. Uh, Kevin, what would you uh, like to pitch in here, sir?
5: Uh, so a couple things. Has everyone heard of the 7% rule? No. So the 7% rule, I learned this in inequality and discrimination in college, and what it is is once your neighborhood turns 7% black, this is back from you know the great white flight days, your neighborhood turns almost 100% black overnight. This is the fear that they put into people at that time. If you look at this from an average San Francisco block, which has 20 houses on one block, that means... One black family comes in, they freak out. The second black family comes in, we're all out of here. So, you know, what has happened in San Francisco, you look at the realtor district map. So we're talking a lot about the past, what happened, you know, before I was born, but we need, should need to also look at what's going on right now. And one of the things I brought up, which I was told not to bring up, you look at the San Francisco Association of Realtor District map, and you compare this with the redlining map that happened in, what, the 1930s, 1940s, to this day, you look at Districts 3 and 4, which Dina knows, she lives in Western Twin Peaks, Tia knows, she grew up in Ingleside, adjacent to Ingleside Terrace, which is the only neighborhood on that side of Ocean Avenue which gets grouped into District 4, which is the traditional, exclusive, white neighborhood. Whereas District 3 at that time was largely African-American. And you look at our realtor map today, and it still reflects that. It still reflects that District 4E, Ingleside Terrace, with Ingleside in the first word of the name, is not part of the rest of the Ingleside. It is grouped in with District 4. So it's very interesting that you can see the legacy of this housing discrimination that's still prevalent today in what's going on in San Francisco.
1: Well, the National Association of realtors helped write and draw the red lines, but I had never thought to compare it against the SFAR district map. Alan, you've been patiently waiting to say something.
0: Okay, to uh, Dina's comment about the terrible behavior of the uh, local association, state association, the national association, uh, President Charles Oppler released a statement, an official apology on behalf of the National Association of Realtors for all the past terrible acts. And comments that they made their opposition to a lot of the uh, fair housing laws and their actions and activities. So people do change. The association is changing. Our past president, Vince Malta, immediate past president of NAR, has made it part of his agenda or his mandate to have fair housing and diversity in the National Association of Realtors. And I just wanted to point out that the California Association of Realtors has just established a fair housing and diversity task force, which will address all the social ills and, well, not all the social ills, the discrimination and fair housing problems that we have in California. And it will not only be black and white issues, but all of the protected classes, the uh, handicapped, gay, lesbian, familial, and uh, whatnot. So change is happening. We're just planting the seeds of change now.
1: Agreed and researching this podcast and kind of discovering the history of my trade association i think was as eye-opening for me as it was for dina so tia what would you like to to chime in and contribute
5: hi
6: well i just wanted to add you know kind of going along with what alan was saying This is the time to take advantage of some of the leadership that we've had and continue to have. So as Alan mentioned, San Francisco's very own Vince Malta was president of NAR as a lot of these issues really started to hit the fan on a national level. And at CAR now, we have a good three-year window with President uh, Dave Walsh, who hasn't even been inaugurated yet, but who is very committed to fair housing issues, with President-elect Otto Katrina, and our Treasurer Jen Brancini, who will become president after Otto. We've got some Bay Area folks now that are in a position to put in some policy to make sure that we keep moving forward as far as a lot of these issues are concerned. I don't know if people really realize how white an industry real estate is. But every time I get one of those emails showing, you know, the top producers or someone who's been promoted into a company, I'm reminded (laughs) of that. And there's a reason for it. And a podcast like this is very helpful because it helps people understand how we got here. You know, our leadership Pretty much up until today, you know, last year at the, still at the National Association of Realtors and still at the California Association of Realtors does not reflect the population of California. And that continues to our peril. So what I would say is, you know, it's very important that we realize that this is a moment in time. And we look to try to put some permanent policy in place with regard to fair housing issues and continue pushing the envelope. You know, don't forget about our LGBT community. You know, don't forget about our other communities, because, of course, this is not just a white Black issue. I really started speaking up at CAR because I was seeing a lot of mortgage discrimination, And what I always had my clients do was to anglicize their name. So, you know, that's a lot easier if you're African-American, right? So if I had a client that was Josiah, we would shorten his name to Josh. Instead of walking into a bank to get a pre-approval, we would apply online. And these were opportunities that were only recently afforded because of technology. But guess what? You know, someone who is Asian... Or someone who is Hispanic cannot change their last name from Fernandez or Gomez. And so when they apply for loans, they are seeing differential as far as those loan applications are concerned. And maybe they're not getting denied, but they are being offered higher interest rates, which means that they have less of an opportunity for quality housing. So I think there's a lot of places where we can really push for change. And, you know, that's what I have really committed myself to doing at the state level.
5: Kevin, what did you want to add? So one of the issues that had come up when I was president in 2018 of the San Francisco Association of Realtors, what is called Top Agent Network. And I had spoken with a few people about this was how discriminatory this was, because what it did was it favored realtors that sold in a higher price point. So there was an exclusion with three specific groups, Hispanic realtors, African American realtors, which there's not a lot of in San Francisco, by the way, anyways, and Asian realtors, because they were favoring people that were selling in neighborhoods like Pacific Heights, Noe Valley, as opposed to agents that would sell in, let's say, the Sunset District and Daly City, which were a lot of Asian realtors, because you could only pick one county or the other, and Hispanic realtors that were selling in the Excelsior neighborhoods, Southeastern part of the city, which included African-American realtors who are selling a lot in the Southeastern part of the city, where price points oftentimes can be one fifth of what the prices of a similar home are selling for in these more affluent neighborhoods. So that's, you know, one of the things, and as Tia pointed out, is you look just a few years ago, the leadership of the California Association of Realtors and even our own leadership in San Francisco was predominantly white, but you're seeing more people of color coming up the ranks just of, of all the different associations. My manager who Matt you're very familiar with Don Saunders and I was hoping Don would be on this podcast today but Don had talked to me about being a
1: Don joined me for uh, part one. we uh, relived the 1960s and the 70s together so he's definitely involved in the series even if he's not here today.
5: Yeah some of his stories of how he was excluded from real estate offices that would not hire him in the 70s was egregious. And, you know, so it's not just how we have excluded the homeowners, but how we have excluded people of our own profession to the fact where African-Americans had to start their own trade association, the Realtists, just to be able to sell homes because they weren't able to be realtors back in the day.
1: Yeah, agreed. Dina, Dr. Honeycutt, anything you want to chime in?
3: I just have a small story and that probably no one really knows. And I was intimately involved with it, so I knew. My parents used to live in St. Francis Wood, and this is, I'm telling a story about the 70s, most likely the late 70s. They bought that house in 1977, so it must have been right around there, or could be early 80s. A body was found in the Terrace Park, which is this now newly refurbished beautiful park that's managed by the association, tennis courts, kids' playground, everything. A body, actual dead body, was found. The next day, it was in the paper, in the Chronicle. But they had the place of that body in Ingleside. So they changed the story. Somebody got a hold of whoever it was at the Chronicle. There was no body at the St. Francis Wood Park. It was found in Ingleside. So that's how deep it went. And that's how deep the perception and we know what continues to this date. So, and, and, and the last thing I just want to say is that we really are, all of us, in this together. You know, women couldn't buy, gays couldn't buy, African-Americans couldn't buy, discrimination on Japanese, discrimination on Chinese. I mean, all you have to do is know California history to know what the Chinese have been through in California. Yeah. and how far back that goes so we really are all of us Hispanics we're all in this together and the only way we can get out of this is if we all are together in it So, uh, and it affects everything and we're talking about housing but you know everything, policing mm-hmm. news, I mean how things are reported, it's insidious and it has to be rooted out and I would say Uh, And Dina's absolutely right.
4: I would say I am delighted that the realtors are going to be stepping up and trying to make some changes to the way this is handled. In the past, we have seen policies set in place that were discriminatory uh, and that ushered poor and working class people out of neighborhoods. Without offering them any kind of affordable housing in other sections of the city. That was much of that was exacerbated by transit policies because people like to be near transit. Then, of course, the neighborhood starts getting wealthier and wealthier, and there we go again. Okay. And it's important that you are aware of what has happened to people in the past. And, and, And it's happened to all people, regardless of their race or ethnicity or religion. Okay. They have been treated in an unseemly manner. And it's important for us to keep in mind that the legal rights, just if you can keep one family in your head, the legal rights won by the Burks family will be in vain if we don't do something about making things better for everyone. And that means we do have to address the structural economic changes that are impacting not only on African-Americans, but other people in San Francisco. You have people who have a lot of money and people who don't. Okay, I work the community. I know what people are experiencing. Sometimes they're afraid to ask you for support because they feel less than, okay? And so your work as realtors is extremely important and I wanna lodge you. And if there's anything that I can do to support you, I indeed will. San Francisco's black population may have shrunk down to three or 4%, but it would be a shame, as I said before, after the Burke's contribution towards winning rights for African Americans and thus other people, if that was in vain, so I just want to tell you, keep doing what you're doing, and know that we in the community will be fighting hard for people, as well, all people, so that they can have a place to live, you know, a place to be, so that they can be free.
1: I am so glad you could be a part of this podcast today. Um, yes, yes, and yes, Alan. Um, we're uh, we're getting toward the, the end here, folks. And I want to give everyone just a a chance to offer some final thoughts. And Alan, I was going to offer you the opportunity to go first.
0: Thank you very much, Jeff. Very quickly, I know we're up against the hour. I just wanted to mention that the uh, California Association of Realtors has has this Fair Housing Diversity Task Force. And the problem that we're having is um, we are, CAR is a real estate trade organization. We are not a civil rights organization. And uh, we have to adhere to the, uh, what our members want, and they want to make money. And we have to gently, or maybe even forcefully, I don't know what, get them to realize that, in fact, they are discriminating. There's uh, implicit bias and uh, systemic racism. We just have to get them aware that everybody pretty much
1: are acting illegally. Very well said. Uh, Tia,
6: Yes. You know, what Alan said really kind of sparked something in my mind because it is what I wanted to bring to this conversation as well. And I'm happy to hear that the scope is about moving forward. The point I always try to make to realtors, because Alan is absolutely right, it's pocketbook, pocketbook, pocketbook with realtors, is you are hurting yourself in the pocketbook by excluding vast swaths of humanity from your client pool. And you are hurting yourself in the pocketbook by trying to funnel one small ethnic group into two or three neighborhoods when there are a vast majority of neighborhoods, some of which have been traditionally under-resourced, yes. But when people work together with existing members of that neighborhood to, you know, get those street lights, to get those street paved, to get money into the schools, we do see the improvement. And we get into this whole conversation of gentrification versus displacement. I think the problem is displacement not gentrification, because what happens is you have people who have lived in those neighborhoods for ages and ages and ages who are pushed out with people who are trying to be speculative, but folks that are coming in that are committed to bettering a neighborhood and being a part of a neighborhood. This was explained to me as far as a lot of activists are concerned. That's not the problem. It's a problem of pushing people out. So what I'm saying is realtors need to understand that the way that they're doing business, as Alan said, number one, is illegal. <laughs> and number two, is preventing them from really growing their business, growing their client base, and improving the community in which they live. And the fact that we have allowed, as I said, the vast walls of the city to remain under-resourced and underutilized is criminal. And I think we'll start to see it changes as as people start to realize, oh, this is not just the way that things are. This is a result of a historical practice that is illegal and needs to change. Kevin,
1: what are some thoughts?
5: So I think the one thing I want to hammer is home ownership needs to be part of the equation moving forward, because what you hear is in order to make neighborhoods more inclusive for the black and brown communities, we need to. Build more housing. We need to build more housing of all income levels. But you hear about as tenants, tenants' protections. Blacks and Hispanic people have been excluded from home ownership for so many decades. It's the biggest wealth builder there is for a family. How are we not having that as more of a part of the conversation to give people that deserve home ownership the right to do that?
2: Hear,
3: hear.
5: Hear, hear. Dina.
3: I will recap by something that might be a little bit controversial uh, for this conversation. Yay. Um, Last year and the year before, Betty and I sold two houses, maybe one was two years before, one was last year, in the Merced Heights neighborhood. And that is, for those of you who may not know, it's off of Ocean Avenue, traditionally was more of an African-American neighborhood. And the two houses that we sold were sold by the granddaughter of a grandmother of a woman that in the early 60s, you can just imagine, bought three houses up there. One she sold earlier and the other two, the grandkids. And it was a multiple generations living in the home. So it was a African-American mother, her daughter, and then their two grandchildren. And they sold... Simply because for what they could get, and I think we sold about for 900 something or 1-1, somewhere around there. With what they got, they were able to go out into the suburbs, I think Sacramento area, Fair Oaks, and buy a home with a swimming pool. And I remember asking them about the black flight. And there's always this thing about gentrification being somebody's fault, but in some cases, it's simply that the people want the suburban American dream. That's exactly my point, Dina. I'm a city girl. I live in the city. But not everybody wants that after being generations in San Francisco. As as bad as that is for us to shrink our African-American population, that it's a free country. And, you know, you own the place. Grandma was so smart to buy those three houses. And the kids We're able to do that. So that's my closing thought, is that it's not always, sometimes it's just a choice to leave a city.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
2: Tia?
3: I was just going to say, and I'd like to thank Kevin and Dina for
6: Articulating my (laughs) thoughts, that's exactly what I was saying was, you know, some people are going to choose to leave, but if we can create home ownership opportunities for those folks that are are wanting to stay, that's where I think the traditional problem has been is that people have been kept out of building wealth and being able to stay when they want to stay or sell and have accumulate wealth, you know, and have some money in their pocket if they did want to leave. So, yeah, I think we're coming to a similar conclusion.
4: I like what Dina said, because it is true that sometimes people can amass property and they sell it and then they go into, they like that suburban lifestyle. And you're right. I know I Brenda of mine had a house in Daly City. She sold it, moved into Texas, bought a house, had a swimming pool and the whole bit. Okay. But always wanted to come back to San Francisco the daily city area. Okay. So people can have sell their homes. We, in the community, we try to encourage people to keep their home. Okay. It's a, the biggest investment that they have yet. If they want to go because they're tired of San Francisco or wherever, then they go. But invariably they'll call me and say, you know, I don't know if I should have sold that property. And I said, well, I told you not to sell the property Why you sell it. You know, you could have rented it out or something. So I just want to remind, uh, You realtors know this. When they sell their homes in San Francisco, it's very difficult to get back in because these homes are expensive now. I mean, 1.6 million, 1.8 million. Come on now. You know what the down payment is. So we try to encourage folks to keep their homes and then find other ways so that they can reinvest or get a second home. And that still generates business for the realtors, by the way. I'm still pushing you, making sure you're getting your cash too. Okay. And What we try to tell the people in the community is they need to take a workshop on home ownership and a community organization that we have within the Bayview community is called San Francisco housing development corporation. We have these workshops all the time. There are organizations meta and in the mission and in the tenderloin and everything else. We have to prepare people for home ownership and you can't do this work all on your own community-based organizations that want people to be in this city need to help by making sure the resources are available because we know that you're doing that on your end. And the other piece that I wanted to, that I think Tia and Dina and one of the two gentlemen talked about is, and maybe not, maybe this is just my thought that people oftentimes need to know that when they invest in property, they're going to have to pay that bill period. That's going to be one of the first things they pay. You know, for me it's after I pay God And I know that you'll question me about that. So I'm going to leave that alone for now. Then you pay your mortgage and then you pay for other kinds of things that are needed by you and the family and the people you're supporting. But you got to be careful because I know a man in the Bayview that had six properties in the Bayview. He had ran into some financial trouble, had to put the houses up as part of the collateral, and he had a predatory loan. He lost all those properties. A man who was well known on Third Street had a great business. Got a predatory loan, lost the property. Had he talked to us early enough, we could have connected him with a person whose business it was to help people save their properties. So we got to tell the community so that you, when you're working with them, it's easier for you to take care of your business with them. That you can't be mealy mouth about being financially strapped. Who hasn't been strapped? financially, particularly now during a pandemic. So I think working together, we can get things done. Again, I want to laud you and thank you for the work that you're doing. I know it's not easy when you're getting those 2 a.m. calls, when someone's telling you about, I need to have this done with my house. I know what it's like, but I thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for having this podcast, Matt.
1: And thank you, Dr. Honeycutt. It has been a privilege to sit here to listen and learn from all of you. So I'd like to thank all of my guests one more time, very quickly. Dr. Veronica Honeycutt, community activist, her daughter, and accomplished realtor, Tia Honeycutt, Kevin Birmingham, founder and broker at Park North Real Estate, Dina Islanian Williams, realtor extraordinaire for Compass Real Estate in San Francisco, and Alan Okamoto, a legend in Bay Area real estate for decades. I hope you'll join me for our next episode when a national speaker on discrimination in real estate joins me to talk about what we can do right now as individuals to be anti-racist and aware in our work as professional realtors. You've been listening to Escore Out Loud, the SF Real
0: Estate Podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002 podcast news with links available at jacksonfollow.com
2: podcast.